Hi and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. Today is the final day of the Edinburgh Fringe, so uh, regular, <laughs> more regular tea casting will recommence as we go forward. I'm sorry I missed that one week. In the middle of the Fringe, it's a weirdly consuming place. And uh, next year I'll try and pre-schedule some, I think. Uh, that said, I'm pretty happy. And this week, my guest is Andy Zaltzman, who is the host of The Bugle, previously with John Oliver, now with a rotating cast of guest hosts, of whom I am one. So I am very excited to put this up for you. I had a really nice chat with him in quite a loud cafe in that I met him immediately after his show and in between him having to rush off to another show and I said, where's quiet around here? And we went to a cafe that was quiet and the moment we started talking, uh, the volume levels went up, which is a weird sod's law of podcasting in public places. But I've tried to edit the sound levels so that that is uh, not a major issue and I really enjoyed having this chat with Andy. We talked about all sorts of things. We talked about uh, economic fairness and uh, his history in writing and what brought him to this pass. So uh, I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed having that conversation. For Patreon subscribers, thank you everybody who's been contributing to the Patreon. It's a massive deal. Um, I really appreciate it very much. Uh, $1 subscribers. I want to say thank you to you. I'm going to put out a few $1 posts in the next week. And also, um, $5 subscribers, there's video content coming for you. More than that, um, I'm putting up new merch on my website, uh, on alicefraser.com. It's a, a bracelet with uh, only the unfinished can contain the infinite, which is a quote that I very much like and used in Savage, if you are someone who's been following my work for a little while. And, and that, that is available on the website at the merch um, link on the website. Uh, and it is $5 off if you use the code which will be on my Patreon later today. So there's a code that I'm going to put up and you can get $5 off if you're a $1 subscriber, if that maths makes sense at all. Um, I think it does, but I'm not great at maths, so let's not um, dwell on it too much. As you can probably hear my voice, I'm pretty tired. 30 days of shows, plus spots, plus staying out late, talking to people in loud places, has left me a little bit worn down. But not in, I'm, not, I'm not ruined. I like this festival. I find it really, really lovely. It's really nice to be surrounded by thousands of other people doing equally quixotic sort of adventures into saying things at people who may or may not want to hear them. <laughs> um, all right, I'm rambling again. I will let you get on with listening to this podcast. I'll see you next week. You're having tea with Alice. So you have an obsession with leaf tea? I do, yes, Alice. Yes, it kicked off, I don't know, about 12 years ago, I was given a leaf tea brewing device that simplified the process so you don't have to mess around washing out a teapot which is obviously in the busy world no one has time for that no and teapots are just all a bit yeah if you leave uh, a tea for too long it gets all mouldy and that's very depressing so uh, that kicked off a deep obsession with class A teas an addiction with perhaps even well I don't know if you had noticed by the title of my podcast but I also quite like uh, tea 
because um, I don't drink coffee. Right. Because my dad used to drink super strong black coffee. Right. And so my first sort of experiences with coffee were all a bit like, oh, God, why would you? Uh, and then dad also would always complain if he didn't get his coffee that he got a headache. So for right. me it was just like, don't do it. Don't go down that road. And then there was a tea shop in near where I lived that was owned by this hilarious uh, couple. So that was their retirement business, a Chinese lady and a Japanese man. And I think he's the heir to a large sweets company in Japan. So they don't do it for the money. They do it for the love. For the love of tea. And it used to open from like 11 till 6 and now it's from like 1 till 4 whenever they want. (laughs) They're always going off on holidays for three months and they are delightful. She's super intense and he's really relaxed. And it's just the most beautiful thing. And I used to go there when I was skipping school when I was like 14. Right, you skipped school to drink tea. That's pretty rebellious, Alice. Yeah, yeah. I was a big nerd um, in that I hated school, but I would leave school and just read books. Right. Uh, (laughs) That seems the wrong way around. Yeah, 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 it does. Um, And so, yeah, I just kind of... They were their whole thing was sort of educating you when it comes to tea and they'd sit down and explain all of the stuff and... Uh, I loved it, and now I love it even more. Yes. Because tea lasts as long as you want it to last as yeah. well. Coffee is like one cup of coffee. Yes. I mean, I, I do like coffee, but it has more of a functional role in my life than tea. My uh, favourite coffee story is, and I may have said this on the podcast before, I hope I haven't, but um, the French, when the French introduced coffee, the coffee houses were also downstairs from the brothels. Right. So the husbands would go there and drink coffee with their mates and then they'd go home and then women started doing these marches and protests against coffee because they thought it caused erectile dysfunction. Because <laughs> <laughs> the husbands would come home and not be in the mood. Right. <laughs> Which I love. I love yeah. that. It's fantastic. Like causation isn't necessarily uh, correlation or vice very, versa. very, very French story indeed. Yes, yeah. that the women would... It's got everything you want from France. It's like the opposite of Lysis's strata. Yeah. That, that. Um, but yeah, yeah. Everything you want from French. It's got, uh, it's got infidelity, yeah. protests. Protests, coffee shops. Uh, coffee shops and marital breakdown. <laughs> oh, there you go. Um, have you been wrestling with any difficult ideas recently or do you avoid difficult ideas? Oh, difficult ideas. Um, I'm not sure I've been wrestling with... What, personally or politically? Just or? generally. Do you have any uh, anything that you've been thinking about and you're not sure what side you come down on it or an incomplete idea or an unpopular idea? I don't know. Really. I've been thinking... Uh, I don't know. I guess I've been thinking a bit about uh, the balance between economic justice and economic practicality. Ah. And humanity's never reached a satisfactory balance between the two. No. Partly because in terms of getting the balance, you, you get people tending to go on the furthest possible end of the seesaw rather than meeting each other in the middle, which yes. makes balance, you know, I guess a yeah. slightly more difficult thing to achieve. And, and broad justice in an economic or like in a market sense is very rarely mirrored by micro justice. Yes. Right? I remember that as a lawyer because I was in a big firm and we were representing big clients and like on principle everyone is entitled to representation and you should represent your client as best as you possibly can and in reality and everyone is a free agent making free contracts out of their free will so you know it's their own fault if they sign a bung contract that's going to put them in hock for years 
And yet, it just felt so wrong. <laughs> like it just. Oh. So how long did you? Uh, uh, did I you was. Work in that? I was an intern at UBS in New York for about eight months. Right. Uh, and then I was a, a lawyer at a, a big firm in Sydney um, for a year and a day. I, I chose a year and a day because it felt like a good fairy tale number. <laughs> uh, in that I sort of knew that it wasn't really for me, but I felt some weird, perverse desire to prove it. Right. Um, or prove that I could do it. It wasn't that I couldn't yeah, yeah. hack it. It was that I didn't want it or something like that. And, you know, my dad asked me three times, which is the very traditional sort of Buddhist way of doing things. You ask three times if somebody is sure of their decision. And then for a while he was like, oh, you should be a barrister. Uh, and now he's kind of come round uh, and uh, I think is quite happy with it. Right. Uh, I, I think not least because my most recent show is sort of a revenge story for him. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Now the corporate, I, I managed to avoid the corporate world through a kind of deep I don't know I was never that interested in it but also, I mean just jobs in general I was very bad at getting jobs when I was I applied for 80 jobs when I left university before oh, wow. I got one why do you think that was because you're clearly intelligent well specifically I was trying to get into journalism and I wasn't sure I was completely committed to it and also I'd done some writing on a student newspaper mm. and what I'd written had been total bullshit about sports. So I'd make up events, I'd do bullshit reports about matches that had actually happened but with, you know, saying Sean Connery was watching it in a combine harvester or something. And um, so I had this portfolio of unusable bilge. <laughs> it turned out that was not what the employers were looking for. So um, I did get... Um, I had an interview at a uh, contract publisher's uh, amongst these publications were the very glamorous title Potato Processing International <laughs> which claimed to be the only magazine for the specialist potato processing industry I cannot sector. believe that yeah. and they also <laughs> produced Asia Pacific Baker about the large scale baking industry in the Asia Pacific region so that is amazing yes my life could have taken a very different path yeah you could be an expert in potato processing yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can do I mean, a lot never of say never. And don't close that door, Alice. You know, I, I like to think I've still got that as an option. It's a, a backup plan yeah. of mashed potatoes. Yeah. Uh, in different. Well, they can make sort of awesome things out of potato starch, like forks and knives and, you know, uh, di whatever they're called. Yeah. Um, uh, things that decompose uh, properly. Right. There's a word better than Compost? decompose. Yeah, compostable. That's right. the one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it is, yeah, you've missed out, Andy, I think. Yeah. But I think the best thing about the kind of breakdown of the trust in the economic system and the movement towards sort of inhumane labor practices, even in first world countries, uh, is uh, that we, in our kind of super, super unstable career choice, seem to have made a more, <laughs> kind of in some ways, a more responsible choice. Um. Well, I think I, my my choice not to enter global finance was deeply responsible because uh, I'm. I think I would have made a lot of mistakes in that. <laughs> in global finance, when you make a lot of mistakes, people really seem to suffer. Yes. So, and when I make a mistake in comedy, I just humiliate myself in front of a paying audience. So, yeah, yeah. that's better, isn't it? I like that about comedy, though, in terms of it's. Um 
when you fail, you fail fast. And you fail immediately. You fail That's what, immediately. I guess one of the great attractions and uh, uh, somewhat, well, I guess the thing that makes stand-up so exciting is that instant reaction. So, you know, if you... I'm not sure there's any other sort of creative form in which you get such an instant response because... I mean, it's not quite binary in terms of people laughing or not laughing, but yeah, you could play a piece of music and everyone sits and listens to it. Yeah, and you, you would can't never know tell if people if really like it or absolutely dying hate on the it. inside or um, not. Whereas comedy, if there's stony silence, then you can't really kid yourself that actually. Actually, they, they loved, loved it. it. They were super they moved were just, by yeah. it. Yeah, sometimes you'll have a quiet audience, but usually you can tell if they're enjoying yes. themselves. They're just quiet because they're tired or whatever yes. it happens to be. Or you see be. a lot of shoulders going up and down. Yeah, yeah. In wood laughter. And they come up afterwards and say, yes. although last night I had three women in my show, clearly of three generations of the same family who'd come in and had just had a massive fight. Right. Which you could tell by their body language and the, just the vibe of sadness and resentment that was coming <laughs> off them. And even though they weren't sort of, it, it wasn't in their laughter or non-laughter, you could feel the vibe. Yes. I think we're quite good at picking up on those subtle cues. In yeah, three generations, in a, were they in the front row, you said? Second, Second row, row, but so there were no people in front of them. So there was right. one gap of two in the front row because yeah, yeah. people are moral cowards and don't want to sit in the front <laughs> row. And so I just had a direct view to these three extremely unhappy women. And the only thing that I could use to console myself was that they were not unhappy because of me. They'd clearly come in unhappy. I did feel guilty that I couldn't fix them, though. Right. Were you tempted to try and find out what the problem was? I was. Delve into their family I was. The only thing that stopped me was that a friend of mine had put out a call for shows with no audience interaction. Right. Because her friend had asked her and has anxiety and doesn't like being approached in the audience. Right. Yeah. So I worried that it might be her and possibly bringing her whole family of <laughs> anxious people along. Um, right. And, and, and so I didn't want to um, sort of make, make them more unhappy and more uncomfortable than they wanted to be. Right. Also, you know, if it turns out that they've had a fight about something really awful, it's quite hard to dig back out. <laughs> Or if they'd had a fight about what show they were going to go and see. Yes, and I was the sort of unhappy compromise. <laughs> <laughs> I remember um, the chap used to come and see uh, see shows I did in Edinburgh years and years ago, particularly when I did stuff with John Oliver. And he would come every year and he would sit in the front row. He was a big chap. He used to sit in the front row. He, big, he had a beard. He, was quite, he was quite, must have been in his 50s. And he would sit there almost with his head like his chin in his hands looking furious throughout <laughs> and his expression wouldn't change and it was if he was it's kind of he exuded an aura of resentment <laughs> and he would always come up to us after and said that was fantastic <laughs> that is a weird way to watch comedy but. The, you can tell like really Scottish people in the audience as well there was one yeah. guy who was up the front who looked so pained his whole face was crumpled up in sort of pained anger but he was laughing but it was like angry laughing <laughs> it's um yeah, it's a weird thing, but it is. It has turned out to be quite a good business model now in the new world where you're, you know, self-employed and you control your income and you're not relying on a the loyalty of a large company. Yes, and also uh, the world keeps providing new things to make jokes about uh, at a alarmingly rapid pace. So I guess from that point of view, um, 
yeah. it's a good time to be doing it. Yeah. yeah. I, I, do you think comedy can make a difference or just... I think it can definitely make a difference, but it needs a, a degree of uh, audience reach. Mm. Uh, so, this, like the show John does in America, I think it has a degree of influence and it, it has clearly impacted on political discourse. It's raised awareness of issues that might not have had awareness raised about them and in a way that makes people pay attention because I think comedy is a powerful tool in that sense. Doing political stand-up at the Edinburgh Fringe to people who already think the same as you isn't going to change the world. But uh, I think John's career shows that that was a, a training process that gave him a lot of the skills that then he honed on The Daily Show and have now enabled him with that level of audience he has to have a, a degree of social impact. Obviously, a lot yeah. of it is... is you know, the vast majority of an audience is already converted, but there's times when it then becomes, it gets out into the media or it gets spread or, you know, even an audience that's on your side might not know. Yeah, for example, net neutrality was a, I think they put the fire under that, which was a pretty undercovered area. And to do, you know, sort of complex issues with wit and creativity is a, you know, people are far more likely to pay attention to that than a dry factual explanation of a very complex topic. Yeah, it's a sort of that um, uh, Greek rhetoric thing. I remember being very kind of um, sort of, whatever, impressed by that in first year of rhetoric studying of um, that you need the three ethos, logos and pathos and I think of that whenever I do a comedy show, like you need to have your kind of position relative to the audience why, why you, why is it you who's telling this story has to be, you know, the structure has to be there. They have to be jokes and they have to, you know, be a certain shape. And then also, why should they care? Like, where's the emotion there? Yeah, yeah. And I think laughter is often a really good way to to make people care about something. Because you can't laugh with someone you hate, really. It doesn't, you know, you have to suspend the hatred for a minute to enjoy something together. Um, Yeah, you certainly know that when people are refusing to laugh at you because they hate you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we've had a few gigs like that. Just a, yeah, a few. <laughs> and uh, what are you doing for the rest of the year after Edinburgh? The rest of it, well, ho- hopefully, um, uh, touring the States in October. Uh, I've got a few uh, live bugle shows um, and more regular bugle shows, uh, which you'll hopefully be doing several. And... Um, uh, and I, I run at Soho Theatre at the end of the year. I do uh, an end of the year review show. I did it for the first time last year. Oh, that's awesome! Called uh, Andy Zaltzman's Certifiable History, <laughs> and uh, so I look back at, and it's obviously a lot's happened this year. This year, um, a lot. How so, will you pick? Well, the challenge is, I guess, to pick, uh, maybe to look a little bit beyond the sort of biggest headlines and find some of the most of the sub-stories that highlight what has been happening. Yeah. The impact of, you know, of Trump, whatever, rather than the... The actual events. lunacy of it, which is obviously covered by thousands of professional and amateur comedians in any for, every format available. So, uh, yeah, the challenge is to find an original way of presenting stuff that hopefully isn't... And also to, to try and not... Yeah, you know, to try and find positive elements because there's a huge amount that's going well in the world, and we tend to focus on 
bad stuff. Yeah. Understandably, I guess. In terms of medical stuff, there's huge leaps forward being made in like printing joints and, you know, improving Uh, brain circuitry and all of that stuff. You know, steadily, you know, uh, education is improving, access to clean water, uh, access for, you know, the the education for girls improving around the world. But uh, that's not necessarily as easy to make jokes out of that as some idiot in the White House. So it's a challenge to. Uh, yeah, to try and present a show that is hopefully you know funny from start to finish, but has you know elements of satirical relevance and uh, yeah. tries to find uh, the positive as well as the obviously negative. Yeah, I think obviously we might have all been wiped out by then, so you know, I don't want to fingers crossed. Um, yeah. I think it's uh, it is an interesting thing with the news because once you start doing sort of news satire you start to realise the patterns and the repetition and it's very hard to muster up enthusiasm about a particular story that is like so many other versions of the story. And um, I think you, to a certain extent, and I, in a different way, uh, tend to sort of come at it from underneath the news. For you, it's sort of the the stories that are underlying it and for me, it's almost the kind of human emotions that are underlying those. Yeah. Like, why are we paying attention to this? Why is this interesting? Because that's what the news is. It's not... Like, you'd think the 24-hour news cycle would mean more different news, but it's just sort of the same news same on news an increasingly and frantic yeah. <laughs> and anxious uh, repeat yeah. loop. Um, and so why is that the, the story that they're hammering that day? Or why, why, is that, why do they want you to pay attention to that? And why do you pay attention to it? Why is it the thing that's interesting? Yes, it's... Uh, well, and, and also, I guess, you know, that's... It's almost easier to present from a... I guess a newscaster's perspective, negative stories are easier to get a reaction out of. Um, yeah, and they're all sort of news people are all very strange people. Like I remember talking to a man who had done news in the US at least. I don't know if they do that here or or in Australia, but he, for the first six months of his job as a journalist, he had to do the death knock. Oh, yes. Which is knocking on the yeah. doors of the of the families of a recently you know dead person and like coming in and trying to make them cry and trying to get the story and trying to like nick a picture off the mantelpiece and all of that really grim awful stuff yes and it's sort of incredibly hard to do as a journalist well, I mean it, and I heard some journalists talking about this I can't try to remember where it was now and uh, saying that actually sometimes the families wanted to talk I mean, because it seems like you know you're, the quote you get oh, you know, we're really upset obviously you, you can assume that or you do need to report that but I've, I've seen journalists saying that you know, there was an element of catharsis at being able to... Yeah, people want to share their stories. You know, share their stories, pay tribute to their... Yeah, but there's something, there's still something a bit... Horribly mm, Predatory or... or you see that in, in the you know, mainstream coverage of, of tragedy. Um, the voyeuristic uh, publication of like, any new bit of footage that shows a some attack or some kind of disaster and all these all, you know, proper mainstream serious news organisations falling over each other to publish something of absolutely no relevance to anyone because th- maybe that's just our based human voyeuristic yeah, instinct. Yeah, it's nice to know that you're not the one who's getting run over by a truck but also I don't, I like the, f- uh, the one thing that I really object to in news coverage is when they have a reporter on the scene 
for no reason. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> like the thing has already happened, uh, or or it or, or even I saw one the other day, uh, and I was laughing with a friend about it uh, that. It was, it was a tanker that had sunk out to sea or had some sort of incident out to sea and the, the journalist was on a boat about 100 kilometres from the place just vaguely <laughs> pointing into the distance just on this boat for, for no yeah. reason. She's not on a boat. There's nothing going to happen. Do you know they could do it on a green screen or you know, yeah. just put a pretend boat behind? Or? Like, why does she need to be on a... I mean, she might as well be in a kiddie pool. She's nowhere near where it happened. There's not going to, like... <laughs> There's not going to be, you know, some oil yes. that comes up from under the water. You're not exposing anything no. or uncovering anything. And probably the worst place to be as a journalist is on a boat rather than their, you know, communication system. You just want them to get yeah. seasick at that point. <laughs> it serves <laughs> them right. Because there's so many things, there's so many parts of that that puzzle where someone had to go, let's get her on a boat. How close can we get to the wreck? Oh, about 100 kilometres. <laughs> sure, let's do it. Yeah. It'll be great. What do they call it? Great visuals. Yes, it would be better if they were actually swimming in the sea with a microphone splashing around saying, this is what the boat went This is what the boat was felt like. Yeah. I mean, there's this great Australian comedian, John Clark, uh, who died, who died year, recently yeah, on ha- Heartache Mountain in New Zealand, I think it's called, or Heartbreak or something yeah. like that. Um, and... Uh, he did that very, very, very good piece of um, satire about about the boat. If, if you look it up, it's right. some pretty bloody glorious news footage of that kind of political yeah, speak. Yeah. Um, and he did an incredible thing of impersonating people without ever impersonating them. Yes. He never so we, wore a wig was, or did an accent. Yeah, or, there was something very similar over here. Um, John Bird and John Fortune did something very similar... Uh, set up to what John Clark did, you know, two talking generic heads. characters yeah. talking to each other, you know, as one week be politician. Always the same name. It was George, uh, George Parr they used, and they, and it was not scripted. I, met, I used to work on a show with them, and um, John Fortune died a couple of years ago. He was a lovely, lovely man, and and so they basically start. I think they occasionally have some bullet points, but basically it was just this improvised satirical conversation. Um, yeah, so very similar to what John Clark did in the... Yeah, I think that was kind of their masterwork. Yeah. Clark and Dawes was the... The front yeah. fell off is the name of... Uh, right. And the punchline of yeah, that yeah. sketch. But it's just... It's basically saying what went wrong yeah, yeah. with this oil tanker. <laughs> and he's like, well, the front fell off. <laughs> <laughs> but it just goes into that... It just is yeah. a perfect encapsulation of the way that, that people talk yeah. on the news and how meaningless it is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and how much they're trying to evade responsibility. But we're in, a, we're in a, a new time now. I wonder if it would be different if they'd jailed some of those bankers. Um, well, I don't know, really. It's a, it, I mean, some of them... There were some jail sentences handed around. I can't remember... Uh, yeah, but it wasn't, you know. Yes. Uh, like yeah, it's different. Sentencing and the use of jail is difficult but I mean you look at the scale of crime and the amount of misery inflicted it's uh, you know not, they've been very naughty it I think depends I'm say if that. you believe in free will or not yeah. <laughs> but I mean if you have a, a minimum sentencing laws for stealing $90 from a yes um, you so know, stealing $90 billion yeah. <laughs> it's almost like nine, you're just like I can't times that. I cannot get my head around it go free it's sort yeah. of I'm too angry to punish you kind of <laughs> Yes, well, I guess it's part. It's almost like the sums of money are so big that they become conceptual. 
you can relate to having a hundred dollars or a hundred pounds stolen from your wallet or whatever but trying to relate to you know losing a hundred million or whatever you think well it's sort of so big as to be meaningless but you do see so like maybe you need to present it to you know so the to, the present the impact of the crime relative to you know what it would have taken as a a petty burglar you know that's you know they should have said the, oh these bankers lost the equivalent of stealing a DVD player from 35 million houses or something you see it in context yeah well the way they do with like it's as many cartons of milk as would go to the moon yeah. they, they do yeah. that kind of thing all well, the time well size of football pitches that's generally you know when they start dis- describe the bigness of something it's in this football country, it's pitches often football pitches yeah, in Australia it's wallabies. That's a lie. Um, <laughs> that's, that's <laughs> equivalent to forty thousand wallabies. Yeah, laid end to end, wall- but not oh, hopping. Oh right, okay. Yeah, because presumably a hopping wallaby extends quite a lot. Yeah, and it sort of depends on their quad strength and things like that. Right. It's, it becomes difficult to measure. And does it? Do point. they expand in in the summer heat of Australia as well? Everything think, expands yeah. in the summer heat of Australia. Right. One of my favourite things to do is look at those early English painters doing Australian landscapes, right. where they just clearly don't get it. Like they've got the light all wrong, right. and then yeah, as yeah. they sort of start to figure it out, that everything and and it sort of puts you in the headspace of when they would have come, and it would have just seemed so awful. Yeah, like it's in an a alien. modern yeah. yeah, in a modern world where we have air conditioning, Australia is a great place to be. Yeah. But there where just everything was squinty and dusty and hot and like yeah, yeah. unpleasant. You can see why they didn't like it very much. <laughs> yes. But yeah, I uh I think that would have been a good thing if they'd kind of put it into context because I remember seeing because uh, I was in New York after the GFC. And I remember seeing for the first time like middle class homeless people. Right. Like there were some yeah. people under a scaffolding who'd set up a little little homeless thing. But it like it had a little couch and they'd put a little carpet down and it was clearly these were people who were had had a home and yeah. were trying to recreate it and it was the saddest thing. I don't know why it's sadder to me than seeing somebody who was poor and is still poor continuing to be poor. But there's something about the relativism right. of it. Know, yeah, maybe I don't know, is it that it's you know, closer to home if it can, you know, I don't know, happen to, if you're from a relatively sort of fortunate background to Yeah, I think it's also that wealth is always relative. Yes. You know, objectively, we live better than kings would have yeah. 400 years ago. Depends on, depends on the king, I think. Depends yeah. on the king. But, you know, just in terms of, like, access to food, hot water. Yeah. If you're living in a drafty castle, by the time the food gets to you, it's all cold and, you know, <laughs> grim. Yeah, you never think of the deprivations these medieval kings went through. You oh. know, and they all, you know, but they would have had, you know, boils and pustules and lice and all that kind of thing. And that would have just been standard. Yeah. But comparatively, And people they were, trying to kill them all the time yeah, as well. Yeah, people trying to poison them, Ooh. come up through the toilet and yeah. stab you in the bottom, all of that stuff. Yeah. Um, whereas now... Our level of comfort is, compared to most people, not that great. Yes. And it's, it is that comparative thing. You can't, you just, it's almost impossible to think of things objectively. Yes. It's a good exercise, though. It is a good exercise. You appreciate what you have. Yeah, I would have been a grandmother at this age. <laughs> I'd have made a great grandmother. Yeah. I'd have been very good at grandmothering, I think. <laughs> not necessarily a great mother. <laughs> In that yeah, I'm but in those days, you'd skip a generation. You, you know, there'd be, you know, 
it was much more of a communal effort, wasn't oh, it? Oh, yeah, so. it takes a village to raise a child, yeah. right? Yeah, that, that's not a bad plan. Maybe I should have babies in a commune. Maybe I should start a hippie commune. I was talking about yeah. that as in terms of a retirement village for comedians. Well, that'd be, that is a sitcom waiting to be made, Alice. Yeah, maybe I should make the sitcom a retirement... <laughs> because that's the thing. We don't tend to have pension plans as comedians. No. We could all pitch in yeah. and get a communal old people's home yeah. and get young comedians to come in and, you right. know, get paid a little bit yeah. to do basic poo cleaning services. Right, and complain about each other's reviews and things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's then awesome. you would, you know, have the older comedians up. giving the younger comedians advice and then also yeah. giving the younger comedians material about <laughs> hilarious old people doing crazy things. I, I cannot see a downside to no. this, Andy. This the is nursing my... home circuit is going to be very lucrative. Oh, man. On the stand-up We've scene. got a growing, aging the population. Down scene by then, if you have money to invest, old people's homes and tattoo removal parlours. Yes. That is... Tattoo removal parlours, I think, are going to be basically keep the global economy going for... At least 200 years from now. Yeah. Well, apparently we're all going to live to however old nowadays. Yes, exactly. Which is a bit worrying. Yeah, I mean, there will be, in 100 years' time, you know, 112-year-old people with massive Justin Bieber tattoos. Oh, I mean, what no. kind of world is that going to be? Oh, no. I mean, by then they won't look like Justin Bieber. They'll look like Hillary Clinton. Yes, a shriveled up. I, I mean, don't know, just tattoo... Maybe that's the next development in tattoos, like a Dorian Gray-style ageing tattoo. So the so tattoo ages, ages with you. With you. I, yeah. I think that's a great idea. I, I mean, this is not something I normally talk about, sort of internet memes, but have you seen the one going around that is that Tom Cruise is turning into Sandy Toxvig? No. I it can see that, though. terrifyingly... And apt. vice versa? Yes, yes. Yeah. That if you put uh, Sandy Toxvig through one of those um, face app youthening right. thing. She looks exactly like Tom Cruise. Right. Which I've always thought she was a very ages. handsome lady. So. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to see her in action films as well. Oh, she would make a great action hero. We yeah. don't have enough older lady action heroes. <laughs> and all the ladies can be unquestionably true, Alice. Brutal. All oh, the ladies we've got the are... queen, but apart from that... You know, she's an action hero? Well, not that much action, I guess. She did parachute out of the Olympics or yeah. something, didn't she? It depends if your view of action heroism is the same as your view of constitutional neutrality. <laughs> which, waving ambivalently, does that count as action... I mean, look, her head count would probably be higher than Rambo's <laughs> if you really put the numbers down to the ground. Yeah. <laughs> There's, you know, sort of... Is everybody responsible for the actions of the Queen? Do we have a communal culpability? Um, oh, I don't know. I blame God. He chose her, didn't he? Divine right of... I mean, they're basically well, he does a lot of weird stuff, that man. He's... I think he's lost his edge over the years, to be fair. I think his uh, daddy issues, absent father, <laughs> trying to prove himself. <laughs> well, the Greek gods, they had serious parenthood issues, didn't they? Oh, yes. I mean, they were eating each other and shit. I mean, there was some extremely poor parenting in the, yeah. world of the Greek gods. Well, if you think of Zeus as the sole survivor yeah. of a very abusive father, a lot of his stuff makes sense, acting out, sort of sexual addictions. I mean, he was an absolute pervert of the highest categories. Yeah, but he hadn't been loved as a child. Yeah. You know, it's an, you can't really blame, you know, the victim in that instance. No. But at what age does Zeus have to take, take personal responsibility and stop turning himself into... I think when you start having children of, of your own, out of your own thighs, then you have to start taking responsibility yeah. for them. Yeah. Why don't we have those gods anymore? Well, they I think the, Greek, the Greeks had a very healthy attitude towards religion. Not that I'm uh, an expert in it, uh, but... 
just the idea that the gods were kind of random and cruel and didn't really give a shit about you. And I think that's a much... That they were kind of busy with their own yeah, stuff. I think that's a much better interpretation of the way the world works and this idea that someone might be out there helping. It's just, yeah, and it doesn't um, exclude the possibility of divine intervention yeah. if they can be bothered or if you attract their attention yeah. through an interesting... No. And they were absolute horn dogs as well. Yeah, oh, I mean, absolutely. Absolute, yeah, I think my favourite sort of ancient Greeky, Romany fact is that the, all of those glamorous, elegant statues were very colourfully painted. Yes. So they would have been sort of a bit cartoony. Yeah, it would have looked kind of Vegas-ish. I think. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it would have looked like a Madame Tussauds sort of yeah. extravaganza. I like that idea. I also like the idea that the sculptors and the painters had a real vendetta against each other. Right. You know, in the way that if you write a piece of work and someone else performs it, you're like, oh, you ruined it. (laughs) Yes. I wanted a blonde one. It's amazing the the quality of ancient Greek sculpture and ancient Roman sculpture, but particularly ancient... uh, And yet then there was no... Humankind regressed creatively in the dark ages and I still can't quite fully understand how it took so long to get back to that level of well it's sort of that I think achievement the access to information is such a huge thing as well and all of those kind of things that you think you know just from knowing them that you've absorbed from your surroundings the um if there was one period of history that you could be implanted into Oh. What would see? I think I would choose uh, Athens in the late fifth century BC. Yeah, wrestling uh, in the morning, philosophy in the afternoon. Uh, yeah, just this amazing explosion of creativity and cultural development that sort of fizzled out and essentially kind of failed. Yeah, um, but left this uh, extraordinary civilization-shaping legacy. Yeah, I don't know. I think it would depend. Different as a, if you're as a, woman, a lady, there's yeah. sort of other... History is less kind. <laughs> yeah, if, it would sort of depend on my status of entry and how I kind of got into it all. Yeah. Um, if I were a high-status lady, you know, that's fine. Yeah. Uh, then even Greece is not a bad place to be at that period of time. Yeah. But it, I think, yeah, you'd want to have a lot of money or else <laughs> be a witch. Yeah, either of those, or both, preferably. Preferably. Yes. I mean, if you're going to pitch yourself back into history, one of those two skills is a necessity, I would think, as a woman. See, I've always thought I'd be decent in sort of post-apocalypse. Right. Because I can do a bit of carpentry and uh, I've got childbearing hips. <laughs> but then in that case, the apocalypse has to come in the next sort of five to seven years before right. my eggs get old, as my dad <laughs> keeps reminding me. <laughs> um I have no relevant skills for a post-apocalyptic world. I'm good at looking up cricket statistics and uh, contrived spun puns and sporting analogy, and I can make a decent carbonara. But um, what's the call? In terms of practical, you could be a cult leader. All right, I'll give it a go. You'd be a cult leader in India, certainly. I was uh, struck last night. I did your show, Political Animal, and. Uh, Aditi Mittal, who was uh, one of your guests, was just talking up how much of a 
star you are in India, uh, which is yeah, sort of the ultimate goal. You don't want to be famous. You just want to be famous somewhere else. <laughs> I think she was overstating that wildly based on my ticket sales last time I went to India. Um, but, so based um, on an objective, me- measurable, verifiable fact, she's yes, uh, overestimating uh, was, you. I suppose to say that. But, uh, the Indian comedy scene is really fascinating. It's very... Uh, dynamic very creative um, rapidly expanding does it have that thing about new comedy scenes because this is the thing that I've noticed about burgeoning comedy scenes is that they tend to be kind of old school in terms of the comedy that is like you have to go through uh, race and differences between men and women before you get to modern comedy I think in in India the comedy store from London set up a club in Mumbai and sent over a lot of British circuit acts oh. and uh, you could see that in a lot of the Indian comedians that they obviously seen that and been influenced by it and so there was a lot of you know solid club stand up but then there was also this alternative scene with a lot of quite political stuff a lot of very creative quite intellectual comedy uh, people like Anuvab Pal who's done The Bugle Varun Grover who's a fascinating comedian to watch if you don't speak Hindi because as is the case with a lot of Indian comedians, they do setups in English and punchlines in Hindi. <laughs> and I was watching his set, and it was mes- mesmerising and very frustrating. That so he had this beautiful way with words and uh, very kind of delicate delivery. It's kind of low status stage performer, but quite captivating. And uh, and there'd be really interesting setups, and then he gets to the punchline, and I wouldn't know what what he'd said because it was in Hindi. Oh, that's was, fantastic! Uh, yeah, it was really interesting. I uh, I saw just in my in my Melbourne run, the show immediately before me was in uh, Mandarin, so it was really interesting to watch them yeah. do the rhythm of comedy in a language that I don't understand. Yes, but you'd see you'd you'd feel the shape of the joke in the delivery. Yes, you'd feel the way that it was coming to a punchline, and you could you could sort of yeah, tell yeah. the timing of it. Um, and then where the laugh would come and if it was a good joke or a bad joke you could tell by the reaction of the audience which I thought was fantastic it's like listening to like Arabic rap have you done that? it's (laughs) amazing right Uh, there's a really good Arabic rapper called Sharia Mansour and she's a half English half Arabic and it's it's great because it's such a mellifluous language right it's it's not got that kind of hard edge to it sometimes it's better not to know what the words are saying with music yeah. or uh, like at football matches so my my uh, wife is not a fan of football but quite likes watching it overseas when we've been to a few games in Rome in Barcelona when we're on sort of holidays. a cultural experience yeah and also because you can't if we don't if you don't understand what the fans are singing uh, <laughs> you don't know quite how horrific it is whereas <laughs> when you all came to a game in England you know that they're all calling each other horrific things and uh so it's kind of uh, slightly off-putting if you're not really into football as a sport. Whereas overseas, oh, it sounds quite charming, even if it is you know, horrifically racist or xenophobic. You just you get a nice <laughs> yeah. sort of communal yeah, vibe yeah. without knowing that they're uh, calling each other horrible names. Yeah. Have you ever been in a, a, a riot or a sort of a sports catastrophe? Uh, well, not in... I was... Um, I went to a game in India... Uh, I went to a, f- a football game in India, the Calcutta Derby between East Bengal Football Club and Mohan Bagan Football Club. And this rivalry goes back to the 1920s. 
And there were about 100,000 people in this great big concrete bowl football stadium. Wow. Um, and you don't really associate India with massive football crowds. It's getting more popular. But this was... This, and you know, when they're not playing this local derby, they get you know, very small crowds. But this match is huge in Kolkata. And uh, there was a riot at the far end when... Uh, player was sent off a Mohan Bagan player was sent off and their fans started chucking bits of the stadium onto the pitch basically and hit one of their own players with a brick or something he went down and was carted off to hospital oh no and the rest of the team refused to come out for the second half and the game was abandoned and there were the riot police charging in at the other end and it was simultaneously the most it was an amazing sporting experience we were sitting in the East Bengal end I think it was technically their home game this huge crowd was with three other English guys and the locals couldn't quite believe that, you know, some, some, we'd bothered to go to see their, their team. And they were offering us sweets and cigarettes. And at one point, I bought a little packet of sweets from a sweet seller in the stadium, and he overcharged me, he charged me 10 rupees when it should have been two. And everyone around me got, got up and started shouting at him for ripping me off. Now, it was like 10 pence instead of two pence. It meant nothing to me. <laughs> but there was, everyone thought, I can't have this level of injustice at our football club so it was and it was an amazing atmosphere because there was no stadium public address system it was authentic excitement which is quite rare in sport now because you know in western sporting events it's all very controlled there's there's screens there's music being blurted out all the time telling Uh, you how to feel yeah so it was really kind of glorious authentic sporting atmosphere which is quite hard to find these days and then it all broke down into uh, utter chaos utter chaos and violence so and you realise why we have infrastructure and yeah exactly it was yeah, rather fascinating that sounds year. amazing um, where can people find you online online my, well my website's frankly a pile of shit and it's probably something I should have sorted out about 15 years ago and may do one day uh, but well find the buglepodcast.com where they will also be able to find you periodically yes. and uh, uh, oh yeah just google my name I guess well, I mean, the bugle is an amazing thing. I really like doing it. I remember when I was in New York, really miserable at my internship, I would run along the side of the river, the Hudson River, do my long runs and I'd listen to the bugle. Oh, right. Oh, cool. So right. uh, back in 2010, that would have right. been. So yeah, very yeah. early podcasting days. But yeah. uh, it's very exciting to be uh, able to do it and well, get all the nice... I've had no mean comments from your fans, oh, which is good. an amazing thing. Yeah, yeah. As a lady on the internet... You are to be applauded for cultivating <laughs> that quality. Yes. Well, I think... Well, that's, uh... Actually, I had one person who said uh, that they thought that I was overrated. Right. Uh, and then contacted me by direct message that afternoon to say, actually, I've looked you up and I really like you. <laughs> <laughs> Which is... Yeah. Am- that just doesn't happen. Well, um, I think in the modern world... Pretty much everyone and everything is simultaneously overrated and underrated. So. Yeah, that's the way of it. And that's a good moral to the story. Thank you for having tea with me. Oh, it's been a delight.
do you know, oh, do you not, this dolphin mistress that we have got? Elsie Thompson, it is her name, and she helps the dolphins at every frame. Loudly rifle, doll, loudly rifle day. On Monday morning, when she comes in, she hangs her coat on the highest pin. Turns around for to view her frames, crying, damn you, dolphins, cry up your ends. Loudly rifle, doll, loudly rifle day. And when the boss, he looks round the door, tie our ends up, doffers, he will roar. Well, tie our ends up, we surely do, for Elsie Thompson, but not for you. Lally rifle, doll, lally rifle day. Oh, Elsie Thompson is going away, is it tomorrow or yet today? We'll tie our ends up and leave our frames and wait for Elsie to return again. Lally rifle, doll.